This is the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast, episode 104. You're listening to the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast, the number one resource for running a profitable home recording studio. Now your hosts, Brian Hood and Chris Graham. Welcome back to another episode of the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast. I am your host, Brian Hood, and I am here with my bald, beautiful, amazing, purple-shirted, glasses-four-eyed, swagger man, Chris (laughs) J. Graham. How are you doing today, Chris? I'm fabulous, Brian Hood. What's your middle initial? I forget. Is it J, too? No, it's D, David. Oh, D, that's right. A good biblical name, David. It's a good, strong name. That's right. So, that was a weird accent for that. that. Was I don't awful. know why. <laughs> you, Chris, you, of all the people that I know, I don't think you have the capability of doing any other accent than your Ohio accent. There's no such thing yeah. as an Ohio accent. Yeah, there is. Back me up. Our guest today, Seth Mosley. There is no such thing as an Ohio accent. <laughs> yeah, y- yes, there is. Uh, and before we get to our guest here, uh, I, I want to I I hype him up a little bit for y'all. If you don't know who Seth Mosley is, uh, Seth is the owner of Full Circle Music. And I actually, I think, Seth, I met you through the real estate meetup, Music and Money, which is a real estate group you do. You're a real estate investor on the side. We probably won't get to that. But uh, Seth, first of all, Seth's gotten Songwriter of the Year, Producer of the Year, Grammy Award winning, multiple Dove Awards. Uh, I think your team has had multiple Grammys as well. Uh, You have Golden Platinum Records to your name, more than 20 number one radio singles. And the most important accolade of Seth Mosley is... This may not be true. I don't know. You have to confirm. You were on the cover of USA Today. Is that correct? <laughs> you did your deep homework. Yes. 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 I go, I go, it goes way back to when I was like one year old in, <laughs> in the pumpkin show in Circleville, Ohio, dressed up like a pumpkin. Yeah. Dude, I've been to the Circleville, Ohio pumpkin show. That's an esoteric connection for our audience right there. Yeah. Yeah. So Seth is from Circleville, Ohio. That's kind of where you got your start, a town of 13,000 people. I think a good place for us to start here is your first paid project. I like to kind of start that with our guests, especially for going through their story. Mm. Uh, was your first paid project in Circleville, Ohio? And if it wasn't, just correct me and we can go from there in your story. That's a great question. I don't think I've ever been asked that actually. Um, it was. It was in my parents' basement. Um, it was, it was the EP that got me hired at another studio in Dublin, Ohio, in Columbus. Um, that's not Circa Music, was it? No, that was, uh, it, it was called Pendlewood Studios. With JR. Yeah, I know JR. CR Pendleton. CR Pendleton. That's right. I'm thinking of, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I haven't talked to him in years, obviously, but. Yeah, so he was the guy that hired me, but, but it was this EP for, um, some guys I went to high school with, my parents were gracious enough to let me set up a studio in their basement, which meant a lot of noise making. Um, I gave guitar lessons to make money to buy recording gear. And a lot of it was just for the purpose of, I wanted to record myself. I had all these songs I was writing, thought I was going to be the next John Mayer playing in coffee shops and all these (laughs) things. Uh, but I was also leading worship in my church, and and so music was very much a big part. Um, but I recorded this friend's band that they were called um, they were called Killing Santa Clara, and mm. it was like a Hoobastank meets um, the Used, like kind of an emo sort of post uh, punk thing. And that was really the first full band recording where I was like I was on a DAW. Um, I think they paid me a hundred dollars a song. So I think I did five or six songs. So then the, the whole thing, I made like five or 600 bucks, but I learned so much doing it. And it was the EP that got me hired, um, by CR at that first studio. If that band didn't do a Christmas song called killing Santa at some <laughs> point, it was a missed opportunity. for them. <laughs> I think they may have played five or 10 shows huh. like, and then broke up. So it wasn't, it definitely was not critically acclaimed <laughs> what year was this all going down i'm actually from dublin i went to dublin Scioto high school so when i started recording that probably would have been when i was a junior or senior in high school so 2004 ish and then they would have put that out like right at the beginning of 2005 i get a random call from the cr guy who saw them play at um i'm trying to think what the venue's called it was one of those grungy high street venues Oh, uh, um, maybe Little Brothers? Little Brothers, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he saw him play there. They gave him an EP, and he, he was like, who produced this? It sounds awesome. And 
Um, so I, he gave me a call and was, I was set to go to college down here in Nashville at Treveca for a music business degree. Mm. And I get a call from the CR guy out of the blue and he offers me a job like, Hey, you want to come work full time? I'm looking to step more into the business role, grow the, grow it as a business. Um, what you're doing as a producer, engineer, mixer, whatever you're doing is, is, is great. And um, would love to have you come work for me. And so I had to make the decision that my parents were not excited about <laughs> to bail out of college and decide to just jump straight into doing it. And that's what I did. Uh, that's so cool. That's a decision I can fully support myself, but you know what? That's, that's just me. So just, this is, this is very much in line with my story. Started in my parents' basement. I'd saved up a bunch of money to get started. The first band I recorded was actually 50 bucks a song. I spent an untold amount of hours on that first project, but it set me up for the rest of my career and ultimately got me out of my parents' basement. This, you just, how did you, I mean, it was just, just for years and you just said, Hey, I can record you. And they offered to pay you or you asked for money? How did the money come up in the first place? Well, they knew I was kind of recording my myself, like, cause I had this mm. little acoustic EP. I used to go by the name of Seth David when I was like a junior in high school. And so they knew that sounded cool. And they had been working with another guy in Chillicothe who uh, was a guy by the name of Rick May. I know Rick. And yeah, he's great. so he's kind of Ohio, Southern Ohio legend, yeah. amazing drummer, used to play for a band called DC Talk. Yeah. And is is a great producer in his own right. And so he had started working with him. He was having, I think, a bunch of like health issues or something at the time. And so they needed another producer. Mm. And um, yeah, they just called me and they're like, can we hire you to record us? And I, I, I think I just said, sure, how's 100 bucks a song? Because <laughs> there was like no negotiation or anything. It was just, sure, let's do it. So that was a good enough thing. You, you went out on a limb. You said, I, I want to be paid for this. Why, why didn't you do it for free? First of all, because I know a lot of our listeners, they, if they're like trying to get their first paid project, it's the money thing's this awkward thing. They don't want to really even bring up They're They mm. rather just do it for free and, and just avoid the whole money topic. Well, I think they use the word hire. Mm. So I guess I just assumed that they were talking about paying me in yeah. the beginning. <laughs> that's a good, um, that's a good obs- uh, observation. Yeah, so I, I, it definitely was, there was no strategy. If they would have said, hey, would you do it for free? I would have done it yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was just trying to learn and like figure out, is this something I can be good at? So money or yeah. not, it doesn't matter the money anyways. What happened was it helped you kind of like uh, cut your teeth a little bit. You got noticed pretty early on, almost a lucky, I mean, you could call it a lucky break, but honestly, if you, if you don't put in the work, you're never going to have the luck. And then you get called up by this guy to come work at his studio sight unseen like he he just offers you a job without an interview or anything is this we didn't even meet like we <laughs> he 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 we we had a meeting at the mcdonald's that was like <laughs> how any good ohio transaction goes down <laughs> Lord, yeah he true. called me first and i think he i think he invited me to meet him at mcdonald's and i think at mcdonald's he probably made the huh. the formal offer which you know it wasn't like a lot of money but for me just jumping into getting paid anything to doing it full time and it was, you know, I pretty much eat, slept, lived there many times, did never leave the studio. It was, it was just awesome. I worked with so many bands. And if my research is correct, you were getting paid a thousand dollars a month. Is that, yeah, that's, that's totally accurate. And, um, yeah, it's not to say, I mean, it, you know, with music, it's, it's hard to put a market rate on what something's <laughs> worth. And yeah. I was, I did just graduated from high school. So in hindsight, I'm like, man, that wouldn't, he like, he was probably getting a pretty good deal out of that. But, but, um, I was also getting a great deal too, because yeah. I was getting to learn and see how he interacted with clients, how he ran the business, running rooms. You um, could say it was a, a paid apprenticeship or master's degree almost. Yeah, it's really, you mm. know, we can jump into this later if you want to or not, but it's really the precursor to what we do here at Full Circle now, which is our apprenticeship program. Mm. And there wasn't any formal curriculum or training or anything like that. It was all just hands-on, get thrown into the gauntlet and and learn trial by fire. Yeah. Uh, so how long did you work for CR is his name? Is that his name? CR? Yeah, it was about a year and a half. Um, it was what I would lovingly call most of the time, most of the time. And there were a few, there were a few exceptions, but it was a lot of turd polishing. Yeah. Mm. So that was just kind of the business model was you get abandoned, you charge. I think he, I think he, I think we charged $500 a song. Um, they came in the morning, played us their song. Um, I would help rewrite it or rearrange it. He would obviously be a part of that too. 
And then we'd go to work just recording it. And pretty much by the end of that night, they would leave with their record. Mm. Um, and so it was a fast, like... That's a, almost like a, uh, an assembly line. Yeah, it was very much. I think, I think he wanted to make, and um, you know, he can, if he's listening to this, he can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he had the vision of, of really just turning it into almost like a franchise, like kind of like the mm. McDonald's of recording studios. Because eventually it grew to where there was two in Dublin, there was one in Chattanooga, there was one in Atlanta, I think. We need to get this and, guy on the podcast. Yeah, I don't... I think he's still in Columbus. I don't think he does it anymore, but it, it would be a great, I, I would highly recommend chatting with him and yeah. just because I'm sure he has a lot that he learned in the process of doing that, even if he doesn't do it anymore. Well, take us through um, your transition from working with him until uh, what you would consider a, your big break or your break away from him, whichever kind of came first. Was it maybe you work with some label projects with him? How did you get in your, let's just, let's just actually go from this. Let's go from this to getting your foot in the door with uh, your first label project. Yeah, it's at some point, um, and this this is kind of the case no matter where you are working or what you're doing, but you kind of have to decide, do I want to be working for somebody else or do I want to enter the entrepreneurial role and, and do my own thing? And so for me, that was starting a band. It actually was a little bit of a kind of path over the river and through the mm. woods. It wasn't just me leaving and continuing down a production role. It was me leaving and starting my own band. and we toured pretty heavily for like three or four years doing, you know, 100, 120 dates a year, 150 dates at our highest year. And so the first label thing was actually me. Like it was, I got signed a record deal and with, uh, with that was with Warner at the time. And um, so, yeah, a lot of the stuff I was producing, uh, I, I did work with a producer. I sent my, um, EPK. I don't know if people still make EPKs anymore. <laughs> I remember those back in the day. I don't have a clue what they do now. Yeah. So I, I had basically on like nights or weekends at the studio with CR, I would come in with my band and record my stuff. And we, we made an EP, which uh, I still listen back to. And I'm like, yeah, there's some decent stuff there. But, but we sent a, um, a, a copy of it down to a producer in Nashville who was really the only guy that I kind of knew. Like he had produced another band from Columbus and had a good reputation in the Christian music industry, which I wanted to get into. And he had me down like literally the very next week and was like, hey, come over and meet me at Provident. I knew he was doing some kind of like loose A&R for them. Um, but anyway, yeah, so Ian was the producer. He brought me down, um, introduced me to the, all the labels in town, introduced me to this whole business side, which I didn't, under, I didn't really know co-writing was the thing. Um, he basically brought in all these co-writers. We co-wrote the whole record. He mm. produced the whole record and then helped shop it and get uh, a record deal for me. So that was really the first like label experience. But simultaneously, while we were touring, um, I, got, I, I was still like recording indie stuff on the side mm. just to kind of like pay the bills because I, I never made any money doing the artist thing. And so one of those things was a girl named Grace Campbell, who was this 14-year-old kind of pop singer who had never really even recorded before let alone had a music career but her dad was a guy by the name of Wes Campbell and I knew that he owned and managed this band Newsboys that I grew up listening to it was actually my first CD when I was a kid was was Newsboys in 1995 and so that turned into Peter, who was the former frontman of the Newsboys, hearing what I was doing with Grace, and he was like, hey, let me play drums on that. And so I went over to his house. Um, it was also crazy at the time, because these were guys I was like, grew up sort of idolizing. Mm. And so I went over to his house. He was, I, I was tracking drums. He was playing. We were hanging. I got to play him some music and um, was playing him some of the songs that I had for my band. And he was like, why don't you try this out for... The, ne the next potential like guy who's auditioning for Newsboys, which was Michael Tate from DC Talk. And so I had to sort of make a decision at that time. Do I want to keep these songs, uh, you know, effectively for myself or, um, and I was working with a co-producer and co-writer, uh, Juan Otero at the time too. So definitely got to get his name out there. Um, but had to make the decision. Do we want to let these effectively go to Newsboys? And eventually we made that decision with the kind of little stipulation, can we get a shot at, co at producing it? And if you don't like it, you don't have to pay us. Um, but needless to say, that turned into 
really what was kind of like my first gold record, first number ones, first mm. big label thing. Um, and so, yeah, that was the whole full circle moment that then inspired us to start full circle music. It was just all these artists like newsboys that I had grown up listening to and then got to work with, you know, first CD I got when I was a kid, first label record I produced in Nashville, same band. Um, it was just a crazy season. So just to kind of recap this, you, you got started in your parents' basement. You, you just connected with a a band in your high school, got paid a hundred bucks a song. You got heard, you got noticed, and then you got hired by a CR at that studio. You worked with him for a number of years and ultimately broke away to start your band. And then from there, you used those connections, not, not used, but you made the most of those connections that you made as an artist uh, to start your production career. And mostly through songwriting, I guess, because you were, I guess, uh, from what I've seen, you're a songwriter first, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. But you took that opportunity to pitch yourself essentially for this label project that ultimately turned into a gold record. Was this the first time you had tried to land any label project as a producer or a songwriter? For that Newsboys record? Yeah. Was that the Newsboys record, the first one you really had attempted to get your foot in the door with the label? Um, as far as like getting paid by a label and having stuff put out on a label, the Newsboys thing was the first thing. So like you said, it's, it's, I mean, both of my, like, I, I kind of look at these like catalyst moments in my career. Cause there was a lot of stuff that we didn't even talk about that happens in between there, yeah. which is what most people get lost in is, is the weeds. But really I kind of look at it as those like two or three catalyst moments. Um, for me, it was getting that, like mm. recording that first band, like you mentioned, um, in my parents' basement, getting hired full time by doing that, starting the band, signing the record deal, and then getting to do the newsboys record. Like those were like just massive catalyst uh, experiences that sort of propelled it into the career that I have now. And since then, you've worked with many, many labels, many, many big projects. You've sold a lot of records with your name on it as credits, as songwriter or producer, Full Circle, Seth Mosley. For someone listening right now who is probably at that midpoint in their career, they're trying to find that catalyst moment to get their foot in the door with labels. And this is something that I don't have a lot of experience with myself. So I'd love to get your input on what are some things that people in that position can do to try to create their own catalyst moment with a record label? I think everything comes back down to relationships. Like it almost doesn't matter to a point. Like every, there, there's, there's sort of a talent quotient that, quotient that you have to have. That's like, if you're up to here, you know, 50%, 60%, whatever it is. If you're better than most people, that's good enough. And from there, it's just being the person that they want to have in the room. Like, it's just being a good hang. It's, it's establishing relationships. Mm. Every one of those catalyst moments that I mentioned, like, wasn't something that I went out and did. It was just relationships. It was like um, I got pulled into those things. It wasn't me. I didn't even know what the word marketing meant <laughs> until, like, starting our academy, like, five, you know, three, four years ago. Um, but all of that stuff was marketing. It's literally just one-to-one hanging out marketing as opposed to going out and buying mm. Facebook ads and doing that kind of stuff. So I think that's the most effective thing. Um, if you're really good at social media, then you can kind of brand yourself that way. But I don't think labels are actively out scouring Instagram or YouTube to find and the next producer for their project. That's just not what they do. Yeah. Since you're saying that the relationships are such an important part, do you think you could have gotten to where you are had you not been in Nashville? Definitely not. No. Mm. Yeah, definitely not. And that's one thing. We talk about that a lot. I, I, I don't ever encourage people to move too early. There's a lot of great examples. There's a guy I've been working with now in the country world named Rodney Clawson who's approaching... I think 30 country number ones now as a songwriter. And um, he, he didn't move to Nashville until after he had his like 10th number one. He just came like basically for a week, a month for like years. He lived in Texas. A girl that we've been working with recently in, in the country world, Emily Ann, who was on, on the show, the voice, she lived with her aunt in Murfreesboro, which was like an hour and a half or something like that. So every day for her writing sessions and she signed to like Blake Shelton's management company and like super well connected, has stuff going on. Um, a lot of people make that move maybe before they're ready to, and then they end up having to get a job at, you know, whatever Starbucks or whatnot, which is not a bad thing, but they just don't have time to invest or to commit to doing music. So 
I think figuring out your life situation is as important as making that move. Mm. Um, for me, I, I, it was just a kind of a, you know, for lack of a better term, just a God thing that I had an opportunity to live with a guy down here for free and, um, was able to work on that newsboys record again. I wasn't making tons of money doing that either. It wasn't like, you know, at the beginning, like it, the, the royalties on the back end definitely are very real, but at the time it wasn't a lot. So I think you have to be present to win no matter what market you're trying to get into. If it's hip hop, you, you need to be in Atlanta. Um, if you're wanting to get into country Christian music, you need to be in Nashville. If you want to be in pop or film and TV, you know, Nashville's becoming a, a viable option. LA is really probably the front runner. Would not advise moving to New York. A lot of people kind of have that misconception, but it's there's not a lot going on there right now in the music music side of things. Mm. And Toronto, Toronto also has a pretty good scene too. Yeah, I think one thing that can be a detriment to our, that we do as a podcast is since we focus so much on business, naturally we focus a lot on money and getting paid what you're worth as a producer, engineer, a mixing person, or a recording studio, whatever it is you do. And I think one of the things that strikes me as interesting in your story is all along the way, money was the last thing on your mind when it came to your career. And I think ultimately that's paid off in many, many multiples of all the projects you were underpaid for or not paid for at all. Mm. You have more than made up for that in your career. Um, for people that probably put too much emphasis on money, what can you say to those types of people that maybe they need to, to take a step back and, and have an attitude like you about projects. I think you can start to become picky and choosy after you achieve a level of mastery in a field. But until the, until you're at that point, you really just need to be a great person to work with. Like, and, and being easy money wise sometimes is part of that. Just not being overly stingy about, you know, am I getting the best deal points? Is my attorney X, Y, and Z? I mean, believe me, we have, we have, you know, great attorneys that work for us. And, and when you get into working with big worldwide corporations, you have to have that. But in the beginning, I just think it's so much about building your portfolio. It's all, it, we, we kind of talk about it a little bit in terms of baby steps and like, you know, like Dave, Dave Ramsey has the debt snowball. Yep. Mm -hmm. We're, we're looking at it in terms of baby steps in your music career. And when you're at, you know, let's say there's seven baby steps. If you're anywhere from one to six, Money is should not even be on your mind. Like, make enough to live, but really, what you're building is your brand, your reputation, which your brand is your is your reputation and your relationships. And so, like, up until you're, a lot of people want to get to chapter thirty really quick and 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 not realize that there may be a chapter five or chapter ten, but you can't compare your chapter one to somebody else's chapter thirty and try to do business like the person who is at chapter 30. Yeah, I think that's I think that's good advice for anyone listening right now. And I'd love to move into kind of a uh, a different topic a little bit right now, uh, but this is relevant to all of our listeners right now who are already full-time, you're already at the higher levels. Something that has impressed me about you more than anything else, I think, is your team, the people you have surrounded yourself with in all aspects. And and going back, I met you originally at the Music and Money meetup here in Nashville, which is like a monthly meetup, the first Wednesday of the month. Uh, it's like a real estate real estate investment group. Uh, and if you're in Nashville, by the way, it, you should be going to that. It's where a bunch of musicians and people in the music industry, producers, engineers, all get together and just talk about money, which is a topic that people people in our industry do not talk about enough. And uh, but I met you met you with that and. Through those interactions over the years that I've been going to that group, I haven't been in a while, but over the years that I've been going to that, your team is at every one of those and they're the ones basically running the show. And I imagine your studio is run the same way where you're there doing the big picture stuff, doing the CEO work, and your team is there making sure their specific job is getting done. And I would love for you to get into a little bit of team building because this is something I personally struggle with. I, am, I should have a much larger team than I have right now. And it's because I'm not great at building. I'm not, I think, I think my biggest weakness is understand spotting the talent in people. And I think you mm. understand that better than probably anyone that I know right now, man. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that and definitely learning it's, it's uh, part of team building building is developing an entirely separate skill set, which is people management. Um, a lot of people who are probably listening to this would, would are just not like, 
the idea of having people report to you and and you being responsible for somebody's payroll and you having to have hard conversations, which go with people management. I mean, that's a big part of it is just, hey, when there are performance issues, sitting down and like talking about it, but also making sure it's a friendly, fun environment. I mean, all that stuff is a completely different skill set than producing music or than, you know, recording bands or writing songs. So it's very much been something that I've had to learn um, that I just had no idea about. I mean, I, you experience parts of it with a band and I had, you know, kind of a crash course in it then, but I, I, I was really bad with, with the people side of it back then. Like there's so many things that I would have done differently, but nowadays a lot of that is, yeah, it's like you said, it's, it's, it's looking for talent really more than talent, even just looking for passion, I guess. Um, looking for people who go out of their way to raise their hand and say, I, I want to work with you. I want to be on your team. Um, I think the worst place to find team members and potential whatever recruiting, if you're hire, looking to hire somebody, is, is on like job boards. Like anybody that's on Indeed or whatever, basically all the talented people are, are working somewhere. Like that's just the reality. Mm. Um, so you just kind of have to realize that. that's not to say you can't find talent on a job board. You can, but that's the last place I want to look. Walk us through your first couple hires in the studio. What were some of the first people on your team that you hired and what do they do for you? Yeah, so the first full-time hire is my co-producer who's sitting right on the other side of the glass here, X O'Connor, um, Mike X O'Connor. And uh, he is also a Grammy award-winning producer, engineer, multiple doves, multiple number ones. Um, but started as an engineer and had engineered all these projects that I really liked and um, was working with another uh, couple great producers that I, I really loved and looked up to. And um, I had produced the first Newsboys record. I was going in to do the second one. And I just felt, man, like even going back and listening to some of those, like my engineering skills are so subpar. <laughs> um I, I just don't know. Like it's, you know, when we did that first, first Newsboys record that funny enough, it's a gold record. I mean, we were using a PreSonus FirePod, mm. an iBook and a bunch of Behringer mics. I, I, the gear sled alert would have gone off right there, but that is such lackluster gear that it won't even, it won't even, <laughs> it won't even go off. That didn't set yeah, up the gear sled alert. <laughs> that's like a forum where they, the gear that you make fun of on. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but that's, that's what I started on and like, was just, I didn't know anything about phase. I didn't know, like I knew, I had, I knew I had seen like by being in studios and recording my record with my producer, I learned a lot from that process. Um, and of course from working in the studio in Columbus, but there was a lot of stuff even there that I'm like, wow, we were doing stuff like really ghetto <laughs> compared to how, compared to how it should be done. Uh, but like getting drum sounds, the thing that I think I did do a good job and, and still sort of rely on is just a, an intuition of like trying to find, like you said, the right talent, the right players. And I knew when, when a performance wasn't right, there was just, there was elements of like, when I would get one drummer in on the same set of gear, the same mics, and then a different drummer the next day, and it sounded entirely different. I realized then that it, the gear really is so secondary to who's playing. Mm. Um, having a great drummer, having a great vocalist, having great guitar tones, and that's stuff that like you know gear gear can kind of help put the last like one percent on it. But it's it, it was so much um, so much bigger than that. And so, anyways, going off to on a tangent to to circle back around to answer your question about team building was hired X O'Connor. Um, I realized I needed help in that area of engineering. Um, he had a studio. He re he tracked drums. Um, I went over to his place and recorded this song called God's Not Dead on drums. And I had pneumonia at the time. I literally was driving. His studio was in West Nashville off of like Charlotte, I think. And I had to pull over to throw up like two times driving from East Nashville to West Nashville <laughs> <laughs> to record this thing. And I was laying on the back of the couch, like in the back of the control room, just like saying, yeah, that sounds good. Do another one. <laughs> <laughs> but X kept the room running so good. And it, like, I just knew from that, that moment, it's like, there are mm. so, just like you said, there are so few people in music who understand the business side. There are so few people in music and especially engineers who understand the people side and like the relational side and mm. running a room, being a great Amen. hang, keeping a safe place and not making people feel less than 
in inferior. Um, and I just knew that X was such a good part of that. And so, um, I was like, this is a guy that I want to work with. Um, he's very competent in his craft, obviously has great ears, understands how to use gear, has used everything from, you know, cutting tape to, you know, nowadays working on Apollos and everything, everything in between. So he was the first hire, um, started as an engineer. I eventually sort of moved him up to co-producer with me because a lot of the stuff he was doing was effectively that is production, you know? Um, so that was my first hire. Second hire was actually a personal assistant. Um, I went on a real estate uh, investors cruise with uh, with with another group called the Real Estate Guys, and they yeah, did this it's whole another thing. another. It's a real estate podcast. It basically. is, yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the biggest, yeah, one of the biggest, yeah. They're great, Robert Helms and Russ Gray. But I went on this cruise, and they did this whole exercise at the end of it um, called the One Thing, and it's this book by Gary Keller. Highly oh, recommend people read it. Love that book. It's a great book. But that was the question. Was the focusing question is what's the one thing that you can do such that by doing it, everything else will become easier or unnecessary. And for me, I realized at the time there was so much stuff that I was spending time doing that I didn't need to be spending time doing. And how you value your time is, is really key. So I realized I needed a personal assistant. Um, if I needed to be on the phone with Comcast for three hours to argue about my <laughs> internet bill, that was probably not my best use of time. Mm. And it also was negatively affecting every other area because after you talk to Comcast for three hours, the last thing you want to go to do is write a song, or maybe you do. Maybe you want to write a really angry song. I don't know. <laughs> it's it's good if you're producing and writing metal songs. Great for metal music. Yeah, great inspiration for that. Um, so he was my second mm. hire, uh, full time hire. Um, yeah, was that the question? Was the yeah. first two? Yeah, the first couple, and then I love to talk about what is it you do now in the studio? Like, what is your main day to day? Are you doing? Any of the actual technical work of turning knobs and, and uh, pressing buttons and hitting record and editing, or are you just kind of sitting in the back directing things now? No, th the way that I enjoy doing production, I, it, it depends. Like today I'll be working with an artist that flew in to work with us and I'll be on the other side of the glass with X who will be running the session. So yeah, I'll be more kind of sitting back in, in that regard and he drives, you know, so to speak. Um, I may pull her in like after he gets a lead vocal from her and work with her as he's like comping on like, for instance, like she's a pop artist. So I may like create some like Melodyne harmonies or some vocoder stuff with her. Like I'm, I'm pretty hands on in, in terms of being able to do all that stuff. It's just like, if, if you were to ask me the polar patterns and like gain staging and phase relationships, I, I that, that goes way over my head. I just more use my ears for that stuff. Mm. Um, but it really depends. Like when I'm writing songs, a lot of that I would consider pre-production because I'm either have already pre-built a track or am building a track as we're going and recording the vocal, recording the harmonies, throwing some instruments on it. Um, so that part I'm very hands-on. But it's in kind of the last 50 or 40% that I kind of defer to uh, X to really land the plane. Have you ever actually sat down and thought about where your next client will come from? Most freelancers don't because most freelancers, number one strategy for getting new clients is something called hope marketing. And if that sounds like you, you're not alone. Most freelancers think that just by putting out great work, clients will come banging down your door to hire you. Now, while you obviously do need to be good at what you do, we both know that this strategy does not work. Otherwise, your calendar would be 100% booked solid with amazing projects from your ideal clients. So to help you with this fight against hopium addiction, I'm excited to announce that our flagship coaching program, Clients by Design, has finally opened up applications again. This transformational coaching journey is not a one-size-fits-all. It's tailor-made just for you. We'll do a deep dive into your business to see what's missing, and we'll lay out a step-by-step -step roadmap to guide you over the next six to eight months. And here's the best part. We don't just give you the plan and send you on your way. We give you personal one-on-one -on -one help so you never get stuck. And we make sure you actually follow through with something called our absolute accountability system. So if you're ready to stop relying on hope marketing and ready to start building your own client acquisition machine so you can get a steady flow of clients, then it's time to step up and apply for clients by design and see if you're a good fit. Just go to sixfigurecreative.com slash coach. And I'll be the first to say that this program is not for everyone. So far, we've only accepted about 25% of those who apply. So if you want to find out if you're a good fit, just go to sixfigurecreative.com slash coach and fill out the application. Now here's our show. How important would you say the songwriting process is in the studio that you take part in? How, how important has that been to your, your success with Full Circle Music? 
Well, for me, it's huge. Um, and this this is maybe a, a good little business nugget for for people out there. Um, if you're a if you're if you're a songwriter out there who's listening, and you have some semblance of production chops, developing that can be one of the greatest investments of time that you can make. Is learning how to produce. Doesn't have to mean like mastering gear and going to full sale and getting a degree and all that, but as long as you can run a DAW get fast at programming, get good at editing, get decent at mixing, then those two things for me have fed each other. Like being a songwriter turns often into me getting production work and into us getting production work because they like the demos that we're turning in and then Mm. they just hire us to finish it out. The other way around is true too. So I'm producing a full record for this, this artist named Lincoln Brewster right now who's this like guitar phenom he used to play for steve perry from Germany. yeah dude that guy wails yeah he's got his own fender signature strat so working with him we're often hired to produce just songs that i had no nothing to do with the writing of which is totally fine too but those always turn into me being able to write with the artist too because you're building Mm. trust with the artist and you know what the record needs and it kind of they kind of feed each other so for me, that's like the magic combination is being able to have both. And I think there's probably a lot of people listening out there who could be doing the same thing too. It's not, you know, songwriting is not something that you just, if you're a producer and you're focused on becoming a producer, you can't just like overnight become a great songwriter. It's, it's like, it's a craft like anything else, but they're both really, really closely knit skills that I think business wise can sort of feed each other. And, you know, there's been seasons when my songwriting royalties are really high and my production royalties are low. And then there's seasons when the production pays really well and the production royalties are high and the songwriting's lower. So it, for me, it's been kind of a, I guess, a diversification mm. thing, if you can call it that. I love that. I, th- I think that the diversification thing is such a powerful concept because no matter what you do, there's going to be seasonality to it. There's going to be ups and downs and, and you can start to, to level it out. By, ha- by mastering one thing, you know, niching down to one thing and then adding another piece on top of that. Yeah, absolutely. You got to master something. Like at some point you got to focus. But for me, they've always just been so hand in hand. And I think there's a lot of people listening out there who are maybe writers who could develop their production chops and that would really help their entire business. One of the things we've talked about in the podcast in the past, I think, <laughs> was I've always kind of had this thought of like, man, if I could trade in 50% of my engineering skills for 50% better songwriting skills, like deal every single time. Cause songwriting is, it's the magical thing. Like it, it is the great equalizer. Yeah. It's, it's just a different path. I mean, engineering in some ways can be a little more, you know, maybe you may, maybe have more stability cause you just make money per hour. Like, like anything else. Mm. Songwriting is very much a risk. You never know going in, you know, I mean, most publishers in Nashville will say if four to six percent of their songs are genu- generating the the vast revenue for the entire mm. company. Yeah, it's the Pareto's principle, but like even even more extreme. It's not 80-20, it's 95-5. 95% of your work is producing no income for you and 5% of your work's bringing in all the income. Yeah, exactly. And that's where publishing deals come in. We We can kind of get down a whole other tangent on that, but so yeah, I, I think that's that's a valid thing, Chris, that you said that, you know, I mean, songwriting, if you're talking about in engineering, like even just what, what that even meant, like what does that word mean? Like engineering, when it started, people were literally building their own gear because it didn't yeah. exist. Um, yeah. And nowadays, engineering means in some cases a whole lot less than it used to, but basically the engine, the, 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 the extent of the engineering skills that you need nowadays to have a baseline career in it are pretty minimal. I mean, if, if you can run logic, if you can run pro tools, if, if you understand how to even work plugins on universal audio, I mean, that's effectively, uh, if you're a good editor, I mean that, that those are kind of the main yeah. quote unquote engineering skills nowadays. You don't have to be able to solder anymore. Yeah. You don't have to solder. You don't have to run a console. You don't have to repair LA-2A compressors that are going out. You don't have to do any of that stuff anymore. Yeah, I want to go back to something you said, a quote you said earlier, which is, if you're, be- if you're better than most people, that's good enough. And it's surprisingly easy mm. to be better than most people because the majority of people don't put in the work to be even mediocre at something. And I, I want to say that 
if all you're focusing though is being better engineer and learning all the technical specifications of things and the polar patterns and all of the the tech specs, the stuff that you've just said that you are ignorant of, things that you don't really even know much about, if that's all you focus on, there's not a lot of pay out there for that sort of thing. The the whole technical side is, I want to say, one of the less important things now. It's more about the creative side of being a good producer, being a good songwriter. If you if you're working with clients in the studio and being a turd polisher your whole life can only get you so far. Yes, you can make a living off of it, but I don't think you could ever get to the point that Seth Mosley is at with Full Circle Music if all you do is polish turds all day, every day. And I think that that is probably because of your songwriting abilities, first and foremost, as, an ing- or as a producer, your ability to spot weaknesses in songs, fix those with the artist without stepping on toes, without offending people, without insulting people, Doing it in a way that is people focused is probably, I would say, without knowing everything that goes on in your studio, I would say that has to be one of your biggest things of success there. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've, I'm definitely can't take credit for the quote, but it's my favorite one to go back to all the time when we're talking about gear and gear slots. I mean, the best piece of gear is a great song, Ooh. and that's it. If you have a, a, a crap song, it doesn't matter what you do in production; it's still not going to be a hit. That is an amazing quote. I, I think a lot of that for you know the. Guy- you guys that are listening comes down to as an engineer being able to like get your preamp to sound good and get your mic placement like these are valuable skills but they're far less rare than a great song yes great songs are rare hit songs are rare for sure yeah and and rarity and value these things are are tied together gold's worth a lot because it's kind of hard to get yeah right exactly if gold was just laying on the street it would no longer have any value funny kind of story with that to go full nerd on you guys here i think i've mentioned this before but when aluminum was first discovered, this is like hundreds of years ago, it was worth far more than gold because there was no like purified aluminum. One guy figured it out. And so the story goes, this guy figured out how to purify aluminum. He showed like the king, I forget which country it was, and the king immediately had him killed. And was like, okay, we're gonna, all right, we, we've locked down, we own aluminum. And now aluminum is literally trash. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's cheap as all get out. It's it's a it's something that used to be valuable, but then became less rare and got less valuable the the more common it got. And songwriting is just one of those things where AI and you know computers and whatever it's never going to connect with a human being and create goosebumps in the way that other human beings can connect with other human beings through songwriting. So it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, exactly. That's that's man, you hit the nail on the head there. So Seth has been nice enough to work with me. I, I came up with a date that would work for all of us. And uh, Seth is putting on a songwriting training live on November 13th. And I'd love for you to tell people about what they can expect from this. And just, just to clarify, Seth has written 25 number one songs and he's going to help teach our audience how to use some of the things that he has learned to hopefully up your game as a producer or songwriter in the studio. Seth, can you tell them what to expect of this training? Yeah, well, once again, I'll, I'll go back to it again. The, the best piece of gear that you can have in a studio is a great song. Which, by the way, you're the first to have that quote on this podcast, so we're going to give you credit for that quote. Okay, well, I, I'll take it. <laughs> um, but yeah, the best piece of gear is a hit song. And so if you're trying to establish a business, having a recording studio, really the the gold standard of what's going to get you more work and more work and more work is not what gear you have. It's how many hit songs have you produced Mm. or written, co-written. And it doesn't even mean that you have to yourself write them, but you being able to identify them, spot them, um, help make tweaks on artists that come in and take them from good to great. That is the skill set that's going to give you that six figure home studio. And, uh, and can take it to seven figures, you know, that's, that's the big thing. Cause you know, when you're getting those upfront fees, I mean, that's part of it, but really where the money is, is in a hit song and it's on the back end. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't think, I don't think you can go to seven figures as just a normal home studio. I think having songwriting royalties on hit songs is the only way to go to seven figures in the recording business. Well, songwriting and production royalties. I mean, yeah. there's there's been single songs that that I've personally made in the six figures on just production royalties alone. And um it's it it can be done, but you really have to know the language of what makes a hit song a hit song. So after having written 800 850 so songs that are published in my career, 
Um, you start to recognize patterns. You start to figure out what are the things that separate a hit song from a crap song. And the other thing you start to realize is that it doesn't matter what genre you're talking about. These principles literally are the same, whether you're in the hip hop world, whether you're in the metal world, whether you're in the film and TV world, whether you're in Christian polka, whether you're in whatever. <laughs> a hit song is still a hit song because it's, it's, it's got really three key things. And that's what we're going to be talking about in the webinar is the hit song formula. What are the three things that make up a hit song. So that's what we're going to be diving into um, on that webinar. I'm really excited about it. Um, we always give away free stuff on our webinar. Um, we give away free samples, which are a huge part of gear nowadays is your sample collection. So I'll be on the webinar as well. And I'll try to pick, uh, obviously we'll be answering questions at the end, I imagine, right? Yes, absolutely. And, and, and throughout too. And I might have some questions for you during the <laughs> webinar as well. <laughs> So I'll yeah. be there trying to trying to uh, take out what I can from the producer, engineer, home studio standpoint, point of view. I'm going to show up to this. I'm going to watch. There I, you go. I need, I need to learn some more songwriting tips and how I can make my kids fall asleep faster there by exactly. uh, playing songs for them at night. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's what we're going to be talking about. Really excited about that. November 13th, 10 a.m. Central Time. Where can people go to sign up for that, Seth? Yeah, that's just at the very easy to remember URL if you type it in your internet browsing machine, songwritingtraining.com. It's just at songwritingtraining.com. And if for some reason you can't get that to work, maybe you don't know how to spell that right, uh, it's W-R-I. That's not R-I-G-H-T. <laughs> if you struggle with that, it'll be on our show notes page at the sixfigurehomestudio.com slash 104. All the links from this episode as well as the songwritingtraining.com URL will be there. So go there, sign up for it. It will be uh, one week and a day from now, I believe. This comes out Tuesday. I don't have my calendar up, but it should be a week and a day from now. Otherwise, I failed miserably as a podcast host. And that gives you plenty of time to get signed up and make sure you show up for this. Uh, it'll be a lot of fun. Seth's giving some stuff away. I'll be asking the hard questions and uh, hopefully we'll learn a lot uh, to, to up our songwriting game. Anything else? Uh, where, actually, where can people go to find out more about you? That's an important part of this as well. Yeah, I think I think the best place they can go is literally just you know being a fellow fellow podcaster. They can check out our podcast. Ooh, I think that's a great introduction um, to our world a little bit. It's at madeitinmusic.com. Um, our company website is fullcirclemusic.com. If people want to go a step deeper, but I think the podcast is a really great place to start. Um, obviously, people that are listening to this are interested in podcasts. A lot of what we dive into is, um, you know, it's a lot of the business side, but we interview every, everybody from producers to songwriters to music uh, industry attorneys. We have a lot of uh, major label A&R executives who, who are on this season. Um, we had uh, the first episode of this past season was with Lizzie Hale from the band Hailstorm. Um, we had John Cooper from Skillet on last season. So just so much stuff people can learn as well as learn about what's going on in our world too. And that's just at madeitinmusic.com. Um, that's great. Yeah. And people can also, not not to throw too many things at you, um, feel free to edit any of these out if it We're feels like We're not editing anything out, Seth. Everything's there. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, fullcirclemusic.com. Um, we, we offer a lot of free resources, including free music production training uh, on our website too. So those are kind of the three things. They can obviously show up on the webinar, November 13th, songwritingtraining.com. Mm -hmm. Check out the podcast. That's at madeitmusic.com. Or just head straight over to our website, fullcirclemusic.com, and we have some free production training there if people are interested. That's great, man. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Seth. Well, thanks for having me, man. You, you, guys, are, you guys are doing awesome work. I, I love it. So that is it for this episode of the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast. I think one of my favorite things about Seth is that there was nothing special about his connection to the industry. He started in a in a basement, his parents' basement in Circleville, Ohio, with a town of 13,000 people, smaller than my town in Athens, which is where I got my start in my parents' basement. Our town at least had 20,000 people in it. And he was just willing to put in the work. And along the way, he had some breaks. And I think you can't look at any any successful career out there and not see some breaks. But I think uh, some you could call them lucky breaks, but as I mentioned in the episode, there is a certain amount of luck that comes down to work. 
Meaning the more you put in the work, the more lucky breaks you get. If Seth wasn't willing to get started despite being in his parents' basement, despite not having the best gear, despite his inexperience with what he's doing, if he wouldn't have been willing to do that in the first place, he wouldn't have had the lucky break that got him hired at JR Studio. I think another takeaway is what Seth said, where just just be good enough, just be past a certain threshold. You don't have to be the best at something. You just have to be good enough. And if you're good enough, it comes down to just being the person who they want to hang out with the most. It's the social skill aspect. And Seth is from all reputation. I've never worked with him in the studio, but from all reputation I've heard from everyone, he is a pleasure to work with. He is professional. He is a good hang and he doesn't step on any toes. And I think that's one of the things that people don't think about is how important the social skill aspects are. If you go to Nashville, which is where I am, that's where Seth is. If you go to Nashville, you will notice a pattern everywhere. And that is that it's not always the most talented person that succeeds. You see it in live music with the hired hands playing guitar, bass, drums, whatever for some of the country acts around or any of the bands. It's not the most talented ones that make it. It's the ones that you can tolerate being on a tour bus together for five weeks at a time. Uh, it's in the, the session musicians and studios. Those are the most talented, period. It's those who are good enough and a great hang. It's the ones that the studio, the people hiring the session musicians want to hang out with again and again and again. And you also see it with producers and recording studios. It's not the most talented always. It's the ones who have the social skills to have a magnetic personality. And I think Seth is a good example of someone who isn't the best at everything. He knows what his strengths are. And that's songwriting, first and foremost. It's building a team, second of all. And his social skills play a huge part in all of this because he wouldn't be able to manage his team if he didn't have solid social skills. And he wouldn't be able to maintain the relationships he has with these platinum selling artists and these major labels if he didn't have his social skills in order. So all of that being said, Seth and I are running a workshop for songwriters. Uh, I'm not <laughs> I'm not teaching anything because I don't know the first thing about writing songs at the level that Seth is. I'll just be there for, uh, let's just say emotional support and to answer questions and to try to translate anything to the average home studio owner uh, here and there. I don't know how much talking I'll do, but Seth will be leading the whole thing. I'll be there uh, just hanging out. I guess Chris Graham will be there as well, he said. And you can get to that workshop by going to songwritingtraining.com. And that is again on November 13th at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time, which is 11 a.m. Eastern Time and also 8 a.m. on the West Coast. Not ideal. Or 4 p.m. November 13th if you're in uh, Western Europe. So I hope to see all of our podcast listeners there. If you do any sort of songwriting whatsoever, or you are a producer that does not do much of the writing aspect, this is a must attend training for all of you. And I hope to see you there again, songwritingtraining.com. Thank you so much for making it to this part of the episode, the very, very end. Only our loyal fans <laughs> make it to this part. If you listen every week, you have my utmost gratitude. I'm so thankful for you. Until next time, thanks so much for listening and happy hustling. Whoa.